I'm only being half sarcastic. <clears throat> well, it's good to be back. Um, as a lot of you guys know, Heather and I, we were out of country last week, and so we weren't hanging out doing the North America um, Easter thing. We were, we were in South America. We had a really awesome opportunity to go and hang out with, the, um, with our Chilean brothers, and um, we just had such a good time. We were so honored while we were down there. They just, um, they flew us down. They, they took us, in, in case you don't know, Chile is not third world, okay? It's like, it's like the States, and Santiago is like L.A. It looks like L.A., it looks like the Hollywood Hills, and, and they, they put us up in a place that was basically Beverly Hills. And they carted us around. They took Heather and I to, like, the nicest places to eat. They would never let me put my hand in my pocket for anything, you know? And... Um, Tough to, a tough gig, I'm telling you. If, if you get invited by the vineyard to do ministry in Chile, you just say yes. You don't even, <laughs> you don't even care what it is. You just say yes. Um, and the, the cool part was, um, in addition to you know just going and hanging out with some new people and really getting to um, really just getting to feel honored, Heather and I we got to minister at a youth conference down there, and it was for. Um, all the, all, of, all the vineyards from Chile, there's about 16 of them, uh, they gathered in, in, in Santiago. And uh, some of the kids from, from Concepcion, which is where that giant earthquake hit, and leveled, they, they brought them up. And so we got to hang out with the kids who had, been, you know, had lost their church to the earthquake. And their church was utterly decimated, like does not exist anymore. And so uh, it was pretty cool. I'd also like to report to you that we were able to, uh, we took some funds from our church. I called John Stearns, who has a vineyard. Uh, he's the pastor of the vineyard in Franklin, Tennessee, and they gave a nice gift. And so we were able to take some cash money and just put it in the Chilean brothers' hands and say, here, here's, here's at least a little bit towards, you know, rebuilding your church. And, um, but at, back to the youth conference thing, um, ministry was really good there. But on Saturday night, Heather and I just blew that joint up. I mean, it was awesome. And it was mostly, it was mostly my wife's prophetic gift that, that, that really cracked things open for us. Heather and I decided that we would take some risk uh, before I brought the word. I, I had basically a word that I wanted to bring about taking risk. And so we thought, well, let's just, let's just take a few minutes and let's take risks before we preach. You know, let's just demonstrate, you know. And so Heather and I, you know, just stood up and we began to prophesy to a few people and stand them up and do this and that. And, and while we're doing this, we're passing the microphone back and forth and we're looking at each other and we're kind of communicating and saying, you know, this doesn't feel very risky, does it, you know. Like, we were wanting to take risk, and while we're doing it, it doesn't feel very risky. It feels like, ah, just the same old stuff we always do. And I, I, as I began to preach, I was a little bit disappointed that we weren't able to go to that next step of risk. But after the meeting, which completely blew up, I mean, Holy Ghost bomb came in the room, 300 kids, it was awesome, okay? And um, afterwards, the kids began to come up to us, especially to Heather, and they would say, well... This is kind of cool. Heather gave this one girl uh, a prophetic word. She said, you know, I just see you receiving bread and then giving bread away. You know, it's kind of the word. Pretty safe, you know, felt safe to her, felt safe to me. But the girl comes up to her afterwards and said, yeah, you know, last night I had a dream. And in the dream, a woman that I think was an angel came and brought me a bunch of bread and told me to go give the bread to the poor. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just, and, but that was just one example of... Uh, we, we did ministry for like, I don't know, about 17 or 18 minutes, just doing prophetic words, and it felt safe to us, but one of the things we ended up learning on the back end was 
that it was first first Corinthians chapter 14 the secrets of men's hearts were revealed right in front of everyone and um, and that's not to say like Heather and I are awesome what it's to say is that is that everybody who does everybody who takes risk in the kingdom see reward comes from taking risk and, and a lot of times it doesn't even feel like you're doing that much uh, but all you can do you're just the UPS delivery guy you know you get a little something you just deliver it and the next thing you know they open up the package and there's something pretty fantastic in there and um, so a lot of you people who, you know, kind of move in the prophetic and that kind of thing, you know, it, even when it seems small, who knows? It, like, it can be actually pretty big and, and be the key to unlocking a meeting. So that was cool. We had a great time, but we're glad to be home. Mm. On to other things. <clears throat> if you want to, why don't you go ahead and open up your Bible to um, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. It's a strange picture, isn't it? There were actually other pictures that were maybe a little more appropriate for what I wanted to talk about this morning, but this was just so weird, I had to use it. <laughs> I just couldn't resist it. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna we're gonna spend uh, we're gonna spend this morning talking about conflict. Um, anybody in the room enjoy conflict? A- anybody? You got any takers on that? Did, any, did anybody leave the office on Friday and go, you know, check the weather before you left? And it was like, awesome, it's going to be 75 degrees and sunny all weekend long. I can't wait to go get mixed up in some conflict. <laughs> you know, Richard says that was him. Yeah. Now, conflict is not always the most enjoyable thing. How many of you realize it's a, it's a reality in life? Um, how many of you all grew up with a sibling? How many of you had conflict with your sibling? <laughs> yeah, I grew up with one sister whom I loved dearly. But when I was growing up, she was a master. Like, it didn't matter what happened. She and I would fight. and It didn't matter what was going on. 95% of the time, I was the one who got thrown under the bus, and I was the one who ended up with, with discipline. Anybody can, can anybody connect with that? Yeah. Not only that, but we also had a cousin, and I had a cousin who was a master manipulator. And it didn't matter what anyone did. This cousin could switch the situation around, and everyone in the entire room gets disciplined. I mean, master manipulator cousin. And I come from, I come from a family where my dad and my babysitter used to spank us with quarter-inch dowel rods. Yeah, you people with your, with your tiny wooden spoons and your, and your, and your mamby-pamby Fly swatters. Yeah. Confrontation. Yeah, so, um, so everybody at least grew up with some confrontation. Yeah. Anybody ever have a confrontation at school? Hmm. Yeah, I remember I was in sixth grade, and I, I was really, really awkward when I was in sixth grade. I'm still pretty awkward, but um, I was really awkward when I was in sixth grade. I was just beginning to get acne, and I had um, giant braces. I, I had, like, really large front teeth for a sixth-grade boy as well. 
just <laughs> giant teeth, and they were all mangled. And I mean, I, I looked like I was from another planet. And I, I, was, I had braces, and, <clears throat> you know, it was your, your run-of-the-mill, school-ground disagreement sort of thing. And in the midst of the school-ground disagreement, this guy just punches me right in the mouth, you know? And when he punched me in my mouth, my, my lips got stuck in my braces. It, it, does that ever happen to anyone? They were literally stuck in my braces. I was so angry that I was ready to explode. But at the same time, I was so afraid of the braces getting more stuck in my mouth from another punch. that I didn't do anything. So I just kind of stood there on the playground, bloody and angry and embarrassed. Oh. Yeah, my wife, when, when she was in school, she was riding the school bus, and she was getting bullied. And um, she kept getting bullied, and, and, and um, you know, it was, it was unrelenting bullied. You know, just every day, get on the school bus, the bully would bully Heather. You know. And imagine, like, tiny Heather, okay? And finally, one day, Heather just gets enough of it, and she takes her lunchbox and just smacks this girl <laughs> right in the face. And that was back in the day when they had metal lunchboxes, you know? And here's the cool part of the story. Heather's like, what, first grade? This girl's like a senior in high school. It's like, bam! That girl never messed with Heather again. So we grow up with confrontation. We experience it at school. Then, then sometimes we experience it at work. Anybody ever have work confrontation? Work confrontation is really fun. I really enjoy work confrontation um, and conflict. I'll tell you another story. Um, this, is, this is a work confrontation conflict that I had when I was 16. Uh, I worked at a local garden center that's no longer here, unfortunately. I always miss it every, every February and March because there's a smell inside of a greenhouse in February. It's only inside of a greenhouse in February. And if you know what I'm talking about, it's awesome. But that's another story. Anyway, so I worked at this greenhouse. I was 16 years old, and I was basically, I was the grunt laborer there. And so, you know, I would be the guy digging up trees, but mostly I just watered plants. That's mostly what I did. And there were guys who worked in a separate part of this, this company, and they were on the landscape crew. And the landscape crew was, was run by about a 45-year-old guy who did not like me. And, and I, I, to this day, I don't understand why, but he had it out for me or at least that's the way it felt when I was 16. He had it out for me from the day I met him. And, and the weird thing is he made everyone call him Commander. It was a strange guy, okay? So he's like 45, I'm 16, and he's always just, he's just on me, you know? He's just on me. And, and one day I'm, I'm watering these plants. It's like 98 million degrees. I'm sunburnt. I'm frustrated with life. And this guy pulls into the parking lot, with his big landscape truck, and he's in it. It's a two-ton truck. It's the kind of truck where to get, into the, to get in it, you have to step up onto the gas tank. Everybody know what I'm talking about? And he has, his, he has the window rolled down, and he begins to shout at me across the parking lot. There's customers there and everything, okay? He's shouting at me. And something about him shouting at me in the parking lot in front of the customers while I'm already frustrated, I, I just lost it. And so I threw my rain wand down. And I ran across the gravel parking lot as hard as I could, straight at him. And in one, in one motion, not unlike 
not unlike the Matrix. One, one motion, I, I jumped up onto that, onto that truck, up onto that, that gas tank, and I punched him in his face right through the window. I mean, I splattered this guy's face right in the window. That's one way of handling conflict. The strange thing is, I was not fired. They went and told my boss, and my boss fell out of his chair laughing. (laughs) Never had any more problems with commander. So when you grow up, you'll, you'll probably experience some conflict and some confrontation. You go to school, more conflict, confrontation. You go to work, more conflict, confrontation. Anybody ever have conflict and confrontation at church? Oh, is it, it's the worst kind, isn't it? It's the absolute worst kind. One of the reasons it's the worst kind is because for most of us, it's the most shocking kind. Because, because we, we, live, we live in this reality where we where we're living off of assumptions that, gosh, maybe, we're, maybe I can deal with confrontation at home because my sister's a jerk, and I can, I can deal with confrontation on the school because those kids are jerks, and I can deal with confrontation at work because those guys are jerks, but confrontation at church is another thing because isn't it supposed to be the place where we love God and, and love each other? And so confrontation at church is mo- sometimes the most difficult kind because it's the most surprising kind. I've been doing this for a little while. I'm no longer surprised. Hmm. Dick Salmon has a joke that's really funny about this. There was a guy, and um, he got shipwrecked on a desert island, and he was by himself. And he lived out on this desert island for like seven years. And finally, the rescue crew came to get him after seven years, and when they picked him up, they noticed that that out along the beach, there were three little huts with this guy. And they, they, they talked to him. They said, hey, now, I thought that you were on this desert island alone. He says, yeah, I am. And they said, well, what's up with the three huts? He says, well, that one over there, that's, that's where I live. And that one over there, that's where I go to church. And they said, well, what's that one over there? He said, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> it's sometimes surprising, but it's... One of the things I've come to realize is one of the things I've come to realize is there's there's sometimes not a lot of difference between home school work and church because it's the same people at home school work and church, you know? And um so before we get into this, I just want to point out to everyone uh one little one little star and you can write it down in your Bible. Uh, and, and the little little star quiz note is here's the good news for this morning. Uh the good news is that in light of the fact that you will most likely have conflict and confrontation at home, school, work, and church, Jesus has a plan for how to deal with it, and it's a plan to preserve your brother. Okay? So while we, well, I want to get through this, but one of the things I want us to keep in mind the whole morning is Jesus has a plan, it's a good plan, it's full of mercy, and it's about preserving your brother. All right? iPhone, don't do this to me now. 
We'll read some scripture. Matthew chapter 18, we'll look at verse 15 through at least 18. If your brother sins against you, you, if your brother sins against you, you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, then you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if, you're, if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a tax collector or a pagan. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you, if a couple of you get together and agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I will be with them. Why don't we just pray for a second and ask the Holy Spirit to give us illumination. That'd be all right. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just be with us this morning. Specifically, Holy Spirit, would you give us illumination into the scripture and would you give us um, revelation this morning? God, would you, would you give us an open heart this morning? Father, would you deliver me uh, from the notion that I already know this scripture? Father, would you... Deliver me from the notion that uh, this word this morning is for someone else. And God, would you afford me the clarity and the opportunity to realize that this word might just be about me. Amen. Amen. Let's look at verse 15. We'll start there. This is Jesus' plan for how to deal with conflict. First thing I want you to note. Is that verse there in, in uh, that uh, the word here in verse fifteen? Um, it's the third word there. If your brother, I want you to just take, I want you to take your pen or your pencil or your little yellow highlighter or the, maybe even your creative and you have a purple highlighter, and I want you to underline that word brother. If your brother sins against you, see here's the deal. When we're dealing with con- con- confrontation and and reconciliation, the first thing we need to realize is is that the person that we're dealing with is our brother. And uh, when Jesus writes brother here, he's talking, about, he's talking about brothers who live in the same house, at, that is, go to the same church, okay? So when Jesus is laying out a plan for reconciliation here, he's not laying out a, re- a reconciliation plan necessarily uh, for how to deal with the guy who's treating you bad at work or who's sinning against you at work. There's, there's definitely a reconciliation plan for those guys, but this is specifically a, a plan for how to deal with conflict within the church because Jesus says, brother, and later on he talks about, well, you know, take him before the church. So the first thing I want to realize is, is that this is, this is your, your brother or your sister who, who is in fellowship with you at your church. And the thing about, the thing about this is uh, there's a parallel in the natural as well. See, brothers live in the same house, so it's not just believers but it's believers who live in the same house. Okay? Everybody got that? Believers in the same house. The second thing I want you to realize is, too, about that word brother. Jesus uses that word brother twice here in verse 15. And he uses the word brother twice in verse 15, I think, for a specific reason. How many of you have ever had conflict with a person, and when you have conflict with a person, the very first thing you want to do is you want to begin to label that person by their worst moment. Okay? Here, let, me, let, me, let me show you how that goes. 
let's say you have a brother, a believer that you live with in the same house, goes to church with you. Let's say you have a brother who, who you know, just tells a, a really good lie about you and tells it to a couple people who go to church with you. The temptation for most of us most of the time is to begin to, to see that person not as our brother, but as what? A liar. He's not my brother. He's a liar. It's one of the things that happens when, when, when the, it's one of the key moments uh, in, in the rhetoric between, between people, especially when it comes to conflict. It's that moment when, when I no longer view them as my brother, but I view them as, the, as just a, a representative, an embodiment of their, of their worst moment. And so a lot of times we'll think, well, she's, she's not my sister. She's a, she's a liar. He's not my brother. He's a liar. You know, she's not my sister. She's, she's a gossip. And one of the things that, that Jesus is, is showing us here is that people, they're not defined by their worst moments. People in this house, even if they sin against you, can still be your brother. And it, it's, 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 the, it's the first key in living a lifestyle of reconciliation. Yeah, sometimes it's just easier to nurse ourselves by reclassifying a person based upon their most extremes, extreme moments of weakness. Here's one of the things I'm coming to believe about the church. You know, they say that, that blood is thicker than water. I, I'm beginning to believe that the Spirit is even thicker still. It's one of the reasons that, that conflict at church hurts so much. Yeah. And one of the reasons that conflict at church hurts so much is because we really are dealing with brothers and sisters. And it's brothers and sisters who have access to our hearts. And people who have access to your hearts are the only ones who can really hurt you anyway. But Jesus says, even, even, in, that, even in that spot, I want you to remember that they're your brothers. second thing I want us to see here in verse 15 is this. It's the fourth word. If your brother sins against you. So when Jesus is laying out a plan for conflict here and a, and a, and a way for dealing with, with, with struggles in the church, he's talking about when a brother sins against you. Here, let me tell you what he's not talking about. He, he's, not, he's not talking about when a brother or a sister offends you. He's, he's not talking about when uh, my brother's personality type irritates me. Because um, here's one of the deal, and I'm glad he's not talking about that, because my personality type is um, somewhat aggressive. I'm, I tend to have blinders. I don't always see everyone around me. I'm, I have tunnel vision focus, and sometimes I'll walk right through the room, and I'll walk past you four times and not say anything, and it's not because I don't like you. It's just because i got 14 things on my brain. And what Jesus isn't saying, he isn't saying, hey, you should, you, should really, you should really take it to your brother who offends you or you should take it to your brother who, who has a personality that rubs you a little bit wrong. What he's saying is, he's saying that conflict is, this kind of conflict resolution is reserved for when a brother actually sins against you. So it's not about personalities. It's not about the fact that, that my brother is a big fat know-it-all and drives me crazy. He's saying it's about sin. And you might be thinking, well, what should we do 
what should we do and how should we handle ourselves when our brother offends us or when our brother's personality construct rubs us the wrong way? Here's a good scripture. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's a pretty good word, huh? Here's what I love about the image that Paul uses here in Colossians. Paul says in, in, in verse 12 there, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. How many, how many people in the room have a wardrobe at your house? Anybody got a closet? How many people chose the clothes that they put on this morning? Yeah, here, here's, here, here's one of the things. Everybody in the room has, has a natural wardrobe. And most likely you went and, and bought that wardrobe unless you just have no fashion sense and then your wife went and bought it for you. But, but when it comes to the morning, when you get up in the morning and you get ready to head off to work, everyone chooses the wardrobe that they put on, don't they? You know, I, I, today I feel like my black shirt or tomorrow I feel like my blue shirt or whatever that is. And, and not only that, but when, when our children begin to grow up, it's one of the, at least in our house, it's one of the first ways we let our children begin to begin to shape their own identity as we let the kids just kind of like pick out their own clothes and dress themselves up. And when Magnolia does it, goodness gracious, you guys should see some of the get-ups she has on. Magnolia chooses all her dresses by how well they twirl. She does that a couple times, and she'll say, Dad, that's a pretty good dress, isn't it? But the point is the same. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Everybody has a wardrobe, and everyone, everyone chooses their wardrobe, and they choose it every single day. The other thing I would like to point out here is this. You don't just have a natural wardrobe, but you have a spiritual, supernatural wardrobe. And this is, this is how the Holy Spirit operates. He puts fruit in the refrigerator, and he puts clothes in your closet. Okay? When, when you accept Jesus and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your life, two things happen. Fruit is in the refrigerator, and there's clothes in your closet. And this is what the clothes are. The clothes are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And you know what you tie them all together with? You know the belt you wear? You've you got, you got to get out your love belt, and you put it, and it just kind of hooks it all together. How many of you realize that, that if each day, just like you, when you're choosing your, whether to wear your, your skinny Levi jeans or your, or your sweatpants, how many of you realize that if every single day when you make those choices about what you're going to wear, you can also at the same time choose whether I'm going to move in compassion and forgiveness and kindness and humility, gentleness, and patience? It's a choice. It's just like putting on a shirt. And, and here's, the, here's the good news. Every single person who's met the Lord has those options available to them. You might think, I'm, I'm not a patient person. Yes, you are. If you've met him, you, it's, a, it's, an available, it's an available wardrobe selection. You might think, well, I'm, I am not very kind, and I know it. And furthermore, I like not being very kind. You can choose kindness. 
It's a wardrobe selection paid for and delivered by the Holy Spirit. How many of you realize that if you, if you begin to deal with your brother who just drives you crazy and sometimes offends you and his personality makes you nuts, how many of you realize that if you, that if you deal with your brother with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, that it might actually change your brother? Think about yourself. Think about the people who have had the biggest impact on you and think about the moments when you've been changed by someone. Was it not because that they were people who moved in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? For the most part, those have been the things exhibited by people that I've been able to absorb for change. Let me put it this way um, while we're on the subject. If I can say it like this. Shame is not a sufficient motivator for change. Guilt and shame is not a sufficient motivator for change. However, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience are great. This is a book that's coming out this week. Uh, It's called Autobiography Autobiography of a Recovering Skinhead. It's uh, by a guy named named Frank Minick. Minick. I don't know how to say his last name. It's by Frank. And um, Frank, Frank was on a program this week called uh, Fresh Air. Anybody ever listened to Fresh Air on NPR? I love it. Terry Gross is, you know, she's crazy liberal, but she's the best interviewer on the planet. And so she was talking to, uh, to this guy this week, and um, he, was, he was basically just recounting his story about how he grew up on the streets of Philadelphia, and in the process of growing up on the streets of Philadelphia, he fell in with, the, with some skinhead ideology. And when he fell in with some skinhead ideology, out of that, he began, to, he began to develop, train, and, and um, just develop and train, even within himself, an extreme hatred of every single ethnic race on the planet, except for white people. Not only did he do that, but he was the number one skinhead recruiter on the East Coast. Now, I don't know how, I don't know how you get to be the number one skinhead recruiter on the East Coast, but apparently they keep up with that. And he was number one. <clears throat> well, in the process of, of, of being a skinhead, in the process of being a recruiter for, uh, for a hate lifestyle, he ends up in prison, like you might guess. And uh, while he's in prison, um, he, um, he, he leaves behind a girlfriend, and his girlfriend is pregnant with his child. And, and this, is, this is when he began to talk about how he got changed. And this was, this was completely awesome. His, he leaves behind his girlfriend. He's been in the pen for a year and a half, and he leaves behind his girlfriend who has his baby. And while he's in prison, he, he's going on carrying on his, his, his hate kind of lifestyle. He's, he's, he's taken up with the bikers and the skinheads, and he's, he's pitted himself against the Latins and the blacks. And in every single way, he, he's living out of everything that he's trained himself to be up to this point in his life. And uh, one day, um, he decides he wants to go out and play some sports, and in the process of playing, he, he ends up getting on a team with all, all black guys. And for whatever reason, he said they didn't kill me. And he said he, he really expected to get really physically punished, perhaps even uh, maybe they would try to kill him. They didn't kill him. And he says, well, at the beginning, he said, I thought it, maybe it was just because I was kind of good at, at, at football and basketball. But uh, one of the things that happened is he, he, became, he became friends with two of these black guys that he played football and basketball with nearly every day. 
And while he's in prison and his, and his girlfriend has his, has his baby, she writes him a letter and breaks up with him. And when he gets the letter, um, he has a letter and, and all of his skinhead buddies tell him, yeah, we told you that was going to happen. And right now, here's what she's doing and here's, what she, here's who she's doing it with. And so they just begin to rub salt in his wound. But two of the black guys, two of the black guys who are, who are, who are just one cell over, they began to speak kindness and compassion to him. It's really, it was an unbelievable story. The black guys began to say to him, and I don't know why it gets to me, but the black guys began to say to him, hey man, I think she still loves you. Because at the, end of, at the end of her letter, she says, you know, I can't deal with this prison thing anymore, but I still love you. He says, I think she's going to take you back. And she's got your kid. And she's the mother of your baby. And so she's always going to be there, no matter what. And so two black guys began to speak kindness and compassion to him. Something started working on the inside of him, and he began to have to seriously reconsider the hate lifestyle that he had developed and farmed in his life. Not only that, he gets out of prison. And after he gets out of prison, he, had, he said in his own words, he said, I had pretty much decided that black people were kind of okay maybe. And so he... Um, he realizes after he gets out of prison, he's having a hard time getting a job. Number one, he can't hardly get a job because he's been in prison. And number two, he can't get a job because he's got a big giant tattoo on the side of his neck. And he's also got like some swastika tattoos and stuff. It's just not, not the guy you want running like, you know, public relations at your, at your corporation. And he ends up getting a job. A friend ends up working out a job for him. And the friend comes to him and says, hey, I, I found somebody who, who's willing to give you a job, but Frank, you need to know something. Uh, the guy's a Jew. And Frank's like, oh. He's like, man, I'm, I, I've, given up, I've given up my hate for most of the black people, and I've given up my hate for these guys and these guys, but I was hanging on to hating the Jews. He's like, you know, I was like, I just want to hate the Jews, you know. And he, but he's like, I needed a job so bad that I just went ahead and I, and I decided to take the job working for this Jew. And it, it was a job uh, delivering furniture at a mall. And uh, this Jewish guy owned like this, this furniture-type mall, and he would, he would deliver furniture, and it was really hard work. And, and, and Frank would end up making $100 a day and just working his bum off. Well, after working, after working for, this, uh, for this Jewish business owner for three days, um, the guy actually comes out to pay everyone, and he's handing everyone his money. And Frank's thinking in his mind, he goes, because I've developed a lifestyle of hate and mistrust in my life. He goes, oh, this is the moment. God's going to stick me. He's, he's not going to pay me what he told me he was going to pay me. I could feel it already. The guy comes over to pay Frank, and in the process of paying him, says, Frank, how many days you work for me? And Frank said, I worked, I worked three days for you. He goes, okay, here you go. One, two, three, four hundred dollars. Frank said, uh, I, you were only supposed to pay me 300 He goes, yeah, I know, but you worked incredibly hard, and I really appreciate it. Frank said, oh, the juice. <laughs> Not only that, but the guy said, Frank, how about this? How about you just work for me permanently? So Frank went to work for the guy permanently. And in the process of working for, the, for this Jewish boss, uh, Frank would sometimes become frustrated with, with something and, and, and Frank would just sort of utter out loud some things like that maybe some other people in the room would utter. He would say, oh, man, Frank, you're such an idiot, talking about himself. Frank, you're such an idiot. And every single time that Frank would utter the statement, Frank, you're such an idiot, if his, if his boss, who was a Jew, heard him say that, he would come over and put his arm around him and say, Frank, you're not an idiot. 
I think you're incredibly smart. And he began to sow that into Frank for years. And after a while, Frank began to realize, I can't do this anymore. I, can't, I, cannot, I cannot continue to go on hating people just because of, of their ethnicity. And he ended up giving up. He ended up giving up his hatred for black people, for Latinos, and for even his Jewish boss. And not only that, but Frank ended up getting a job uh, working for um, basically like reconciliation groups within inner city and, and, and getting kids to come out of like the, the Nazi neo-skinhead lifestyle. How did that happen? That happened because someone decided, not just someone, but several someones decided that they would put on clothes of compassion and humility and kindness. It changes people. This is, this is how you deal with your brother who gets on your nerves. So verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. If, if you have a brother, somebody in the purple chairs, and they sin against you, the first thing you need to do is you need to go to that brother and you need to go to him one-on-one privately. This is, this is the point where most of us really fall off the wagon. And, and by most of us, I mean like, I've even fallen off of this wagon before. And this is one of the points in Jesus' teaching here that demonstrates his utter brilliance in all situations. We sometimes talk about this around here, that Jesus is the most brilliant person who ever lived. Jesus is the most brilliant person who ever... He knows more about anything than anyone else ever, okay? Not only that, but Jesus knows more about reconciliation and confrontation than anyone ever. So if you have a brother or a sister in the house and they sin against you one-on-one, Jesus says you need to go to that person and you need to go to them privately. You need to show them his fault. And, and the brilliance here is on a couple levels. The brilliance is the brilliance in going to your brother and in doing it privately, at least part of the brilliance is, is this. How many of you have ever, have ever felt like you had a brother in-house who had sinned against you? Not only that, it wasn't just a feeling. You, you had become 100% convinced that your brother in-house 100% had most definitely sinned against you. Anybody ever felt like that? I go to church with this guy. No doubt about it, this guy has sinned against me. No doubt about it. Okay, after you've gotten to that point and you've decided to go to him, how many of you have ever went to your brother and as the words were coming out of your mouth, as you were beginning to show him his fault, and as the words were coming out of your mouth, how many of you have ever, have ever gotten halfway through the you've sinned against me speech and realized, oh my goodness, this was a misunderstanding and it's all me? Anybody ever had that happen? At that point, are you glad that you kept it just between you and your brother? See, it's the brilliance of Jesus 
Jesus says, if you've got an issue, you need to take it up with your brother one-on-one and go to him privately. It does two things. It protects your brother's reputation. Not only that, but it protects your reputation. Because there's a really good chance that you could have gotten it wrong. I can't tell you how many times when I've been certain someone has thrown me under the bus and on my way to go say, hey, did you throw me under the bus? Or when I was beginning to, to share my heart with them about how I felt like they'd thrown me under the bus, I realized, oh, I completely misread this. It's me. See, Jesus is protecting people. A lot of times, a lot of times when, when we, we think about this, uh, we get a little upset. We're like, dang it, you know, he sinned against me. Why do I have to go to him, you know? It's just part of the kingdom. Um, one, of the, um, one of the things, if you want to, you can look at all the way through Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 begins with Jesus' teaching about who is the greatest. And then Jesus goes on to teach about, about if you teach uh, a little one to sin. And then he goes on to say, you know, I'm the kind of person who will leave, leave the 99 and I'll go get the one. And so you might be thinking, well, someone sinned against me. Why do I have to go to them? It's just how the kingdom works. In the kingdom of heaven, we prefer others as better than our own selves. Even, even if we're the one who's been sinned against. We, 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 we maintain honor for our brother. And so rather than saying, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to stew in my, own, in my own anger and I'm going to wait till they come to me. In the kingdom of heaven, because we prefer our brother, we go ahead and we go to them. Not only when he sinned against you, but Matthew chapter 5 says this. Jesus says that if you're, if you're at church, and while you're at church in the middle of the worship service, if you realize that your brother has something against you, you should go to him. So it's not just if your brother sinned against you, but if you realize that maybe you've done something to your brother, you need to go to him. So Jesus says, go find your brother, go get him. Go find him privately. The thing that Jesus doesn't say is, build a coalition by calling all your friends. The other thing that Jesus doesn't say is, plaster it all over the internet. Okay, this is going to get heavy, okay? So I'm, just, I'm going to just apologize beforehand. The other thing that Jesus doesn't say is, update your status on Facebook repeatedly with your offense. I mean, have, you, have you guys noticed that happening like all the time? Somebody gets mad and they just start hammering Facebook. Yeah. See, here's the danger in building outside coalitions. The danger in building outside coalitions, a couple dangers. Number one, when you build an outside coalition of, with people who have nothing to do with the situation, the first thing that happens is, quite often, people who haven't been touched by the situation will begin to take on your offense. Okay? It's a natural thing. You can't help it. You know why you can't help it? Because you're family and it's your brothers. Okay? So when a brother hurts another brother, when you go to take on, when you begin to include other people and begin to build an outside coalition against this person people will begin to take on the person who's been offended. And when that begins to happen, factions begin to form. You know, I'm on, I'm on that team and I'm on that team. And when factions begin to form, divisions begin to spring up. And you see where this goes. See, out, outside coalitions, 
they only they only have one they only have one trajectory and outside coalitions they they build toward a trajectory of of division the second thing that happens that's really toxic um is this when you begin to build outside coalitions i don't know if you've ever noticed this but the rhetoric will change okay when when i get hurt by a brother if it's just between me and richard if richard hurts me i might be thinking in my heart richard he's such a you know i might be thinking that but but if i keep it just between me and richard richard and i can work it out because we're brothers and i love him when i begin to tell when i begin to tell everybody else about how richard's just a the, the rhetoric will change from Richard is a liar to Richard's a dirty, rotten liar. By the time you get about four or five people involved, it's Richard's always a dirty, rotten liar. Now, is any of that true? Absolutely not. See, the rhetoric changes when we, when we begin to pull other people in. And this is what Proverbs says. Proverbs 26, 20 says that without, a, without wood, a fire goes out, and without gossip, a quarrel, a quarrel dies down. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. So if we, if, we have, if we have a conflict, these are steps to deal with a brother. We need, to, we need to go to him. We need to go to him privately. And I'd like to add a couple things. Go to him face to face. How many of you have ever written an email or read an email and gotten the emotions all mixed up in the email? Have you ever noticed you cannot decipher emotions in email? I don't care how good you are, unless you're an incredibly great writer, this determining, determining emotions inside of an email is incredibly difficult. So if you can, go to them. If they live a long ways off, then heck, pick up the phone. But it's your brother, so it's, it's worth taking an extra step. Not only that, but it's, it's about going with the heart of reconciliation. Galatians 6 says this, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. See, when Paul writes this in Galatians, here's what he's saying. He says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, if you catch someone in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. When Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin, he's not saying if someone is caught in some sins. He's talking about any kind of sin. What's the point? The point is, the, the, the goal of any confrontation is always restoration. The goal of any confrontation is always restoration. It's not about proving myself right. It's not about proving myself as the person who's been sinned against. It's about, it's about restoration. Jesus has a plan. But if he won't listen to you, take one or two other brothers along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And again, the brilliance of Jesus is on full display. So you go to your brother, you, you tell him, hey, you know, this thing between us, it's not good. You sinned against me. Brother says, I don't know what you're talking about. Get away from me. If that doesn't work, then you just grab a couple people and, and you go over. So you, you, Jesus says, enlarge the circle by two or three. Not by ten, by two or three. And when, when you're enlarging the circle, you're not, you're not just picking people who are going to automatically agree with you. You're choosing people who have a vested interest in everyone who's involved. That's huge. Okay? You're choosing people who have a vested interest in everyone who's involved. I can't tell you how many times where, where, um, where, we've, where we've been involved in some confrontation and, and we've, we've done it like this and maybe, maybe they didn't want to hear 
Um, maybe the one-on-one thing didn't work out so well, and so you grab a couple people and you go. And, and the, when you grab a couple people, the, the brilliance of Jesus in this is that the, the couple people you choose, especially if they're people of wisdom and insight, they become the kind of people who can, who can further check, check you out and say, well, hey, you know, you're, you're pretty tore up about this, but really he didn't do anything. It's really not sin at all. It's just he's got a crazy personality and you need to go over it. It protects reputations again. The goal isn't for vindication. The goal is, is for reconciliation every single time. And so if the person still refuses to listen, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is where it gets like really serious, you know. This is, this is where everybody in the room starts bugging out. Ah! But Jesus is giving, giving three, three simple and clear steps for how to, how to deal with conflict in the church. Here's the mistake that we can make, though. The mistake would be to say, well, three simple steps, I kind of get it, and then begin to apply three simple steps in a non-caring, non-compassionate, religious sort of way. And uh, Raymond, if you want to you show something? I want to show you. I've got a little clip for you guys about just running the playbook. This is, uh, this is from an episode of The Office. When Theater's tool chest. Okay, well, before we get started, you should know that there are five different styles of conflict. My Shaolin Temple style defeats your monkey style. Can we go? I have a lot of work to do. Nope, this is important. Okay, the first style is lose-lose. What's the next one? Just hold on, please. Okay, if we do lose-lose, neither of you gets what you want. Do you understand? you would both lose. Now I need to ask you, do you want to pursue a lose-lose negotiation? Can we just skip to whatever number five is, win-win or whatever? Win-win is number four, and number five is win-win-win. The important difference here is with win-win-win, we all win. Me too. I win for having successfully mediated a conflict at work. See, it's not about running the playbook. It's not about saying, well, here, here's, here's three steps and, you know, let's just get it on, you know. If it works out, great. And if it doesn't, then let's just kick them out of church, you know. About that third step, I, I want to I share a couple thoughts with you guys about, about that most extreme step that tends to bug people out. Uh, and the first thing I'd like to share with you is this. I, I don't know if you, if you can notice this through, through Jesus' plan of, of dealing with confrontation. But built into Jesus' plan for dealing with confrontation is Jesus' extreme love for the church. Jesus has extreme love for the church. He loves it so much that he deals specifically with how to, how to handle confrontation in a manner that will not destroy the church. He loves the church. He even loves the guy that's, that's aggravating the church, but he really loves the church. And the second thing I'd like to point out is this, is that this is, not a ki- this is not a system for kicking out bad people. It's a thoughtful process 
for appealing to a brother who needs reconciliation. This is not a system for kicking out bad people. It's a thoughtful process for, for welcoming in a brother who needs reconciliation. And that's really important because I don't know if any of you guys have ever had psychology class back in the day, or maybe you're taking psychology right now. But one, one of the things that you'll, you'll study in psychology is this, that what you're looking for will often determine what you find. You know what I'm talking about? Because if you're looking at this passage, if you're looking at this passage and you're wanting to find a way to kick out people that you don't like, then you can find that. But that's not really what this passage is about at all. This passage is about reconciliation and restoring brothers who need contact. That's what it's about. Did you guys ever, you ever seen those like pictures in your, in your like psychology 101 book? And it's a picture and some people will look at it and see a candlestick and the other people will look at it and see a face, you know? Yeah, see, what you're looking for determines what you find so many times, even in the scriptures. Third thing I'd like to share with you about, just about Jesus' heart for reconciliation and, 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 and specifically this passage is this, that in, in 20 years of, of doing church stuff, I have seen steps one and two work all the time. In 20 years of doing this stuff, I've never, ever, ever seen it have to go to step three. I know that it has had to go to step three for some places. I've talked to one pastor friend. He's been in the ministry for 40 years, and he said in 40 years he saw it have to happen one time. What I've seen over and over, even here in the vineyard, what I've seen is people who devote themselves to step one Step one probably works, and this is not an exaggeration, step one probably works 95% of the time. Because if you're a brother, if you're a brother, most people want to remain brothers, you know? It's, and, and the difficult thing is to not just alienate them as the guy who does bad things, but to see them as your brother. So most, step one, going to your brother and sharing with him privately, I've seen it work probably 95% of the time. On the, on the rare occasion that we've done step two, I've seen it work every time as well. Never even seen step three. God help us. I hope we don't. Step, step one and two, they just, they just work. And the third thing I'd like to, like to point out about, about all of this is that I'd like you to notice h- how, much, how much mercy is involved in Jesus' plan for confrontation and conflict. Go to your brother. And if your brother doesn't like it, then give him another chance and take some people with you. And if he still doesn't like it, then give him another chance. There's chances built into it. See, Jesus is, a, he's, he, Jesus is all about mercy. And he's, he's willing to give people one chance, two chances, three chances. And, you know, I, I've read this several times. There's, there's really nothing in here that says that, that after, the, after the second time, if the brother's still acting kind of crazy, there's, there's nothing in there that says that, you know, the, that he has to bring him to the church on the third time. Heck, give him five chances. Jesus' plan, I want you to see that, Jesus' plan is full of mercy. The last thing I'd like you to, to, to note is this. On that last little line, Jesus says, well, just treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And, and I'd like, to, I'd like you, for you to consider this. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Yeah, he went to, how, he went to their house and he drank their wine, he ate their dinner, and he had a good time with them. See, there's, there's just mercy built into even Jesus' Jesus's plan. One more thing and then we'll be done. 
See, most of us, most of us weren't, weren't raised learning how to handle conflict. Most of us weren't taught about how to handle conflict. Most of us were just thrown in the shark tank and and, and after we were thrown in the shark tank, some of us decided we'd be the runners and we'd run away, and then others decided us we'd come out swinging, you know? And um, so that's one of the reasons I want to go over this, but I, I, I want to spend just a minute here, and I want to redefine, I want, I want to redefine, if I can, at least a little bit, uh, about what our heart for confrontation should be. See, most of us grew up, and our lifestyles of growing up have shaped who we are to the point that when we hear confrontation or conflict, we get that, that shaky feeling on the inside and we, we want to avoid it at all costs. And if I were, you know, if we were to be honest, everybody would put their hand and go up, ah, I want to avoid conflict. But I want us to I want to redefine that a little bit. Because here's what conflict really means. Nobody nobody we, we definitely don't want to uh, create an atmosphere or a culture where we're we're pro conflict, but we want to create an atmosphere and a culture where if, 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 if that's what's necessary, if we need to have confrontation, we need to, we need to be able to handle that. Because here's what, here's what a willingness to confront means. A willingness to confront means that I have hope that my brother can change. When I've given up, when I've given up my willingness to confront, what it really means is I've given up on my brother. And I think that's just a huge issue. See, a willingness to confront It holds out hope that people can change. Running away assumes that they can't, you know? And it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a way of giving up. All right. Jesus, we love you. Um, if, you're on the, if, you're on the, um, if you're on the ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up?